All right, amen. I want to invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to Luke chapter 2. Gospel according to Luke chapter 2. If you're looking in the Pew Bible, you ought to find it on page 1090. Luke chapter 2. Uh, the story we're going to read together this morning is, is one that I've preached just once before back in December of 2014, so six years ago. And the reason that is personally significant to me is because this time six years ago, I was not yet a dad. And as I was reading the story this week, it hit me in a way that it didn't hit me six years ago. Uh, we're going to hear a man named Simeon take up the infant Jesus in his arms and bless God because of him. And as I was reading it, I thought, you know, I can imagine the sense of joy that must have given Joseph and Mary to hear someone filled with the Spirit of God to bless God because of the birth of their son. But Simeon is also going to hint at the sadness and the heartbreak that Jesus' life and death will bring, especially to Mary. And so what impacted me so much as I read the story this week was, was knowing that what if I were in their shoes, that I as a parent would do anything within my power to, to fight for my sons. And yet we also know that there are so many things that are completely outside our control that Every day, we all entrust our lives and the lives of those we love to the Lord. Whether we acknowledge it or not, we, we do that. We entrust them to Him. And the same was true for Jesus' earthly parents. And so it's helpful to just kind of pause as we read through this story and remember the humanity of these people. Um, that they're not just characters in a story. These are parents who loved their son. And thankfully for us, they are also people who loved the Lord and walked in faithfulness toward Him. And so I, I want you to see with me this morning that in the providence of God, Joseph and Mary fulfilled a crucial role in God's plan. If I could say it in a more provocative way, I would say it this way. Without Joseph and Mary doing what they do here in Luke 2, you and I could not be saved. I want to Let's read it together. That's how pivotal this story is, and I'll try to show you what I mean. So we're going to pick up in Luke chapter 2 and verse 22. It says, And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law... He took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. 
And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of Him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord... They returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth, and the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would bless the hearing of your word this morning. Open our eyes to see what you would have to show us, and open our ears to hear what you would have to say to us. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, over the course of, of Advent, um, we, we think about the long period of time in which God's people waited for the coming of God's promised Redeemer. We sing, Come Thou Long Expected, Jesus. And uh, even once He came, even once He was born, it's not like Jesus entered the world as a fully grown man who was ready to go straight to the cross, Right? He came into the world as a baby, and he went through all of the developmental milestones that every human child does. And this was part of God's wise plan to prepare a salvation for his people. That's what Simeon says in his psalm that we just read. He says in verse 30, For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. So there was a a preparation period. There was a period of time between the entrance of the Redeemer into the world and when that Redeemer did His work of redemption on the cross and in the uh, empty tomb. So Jesus is that salvation which God has prepared. And what happens in this story is part of His preparation. Luke says in verse 22 that Joseph and Mary brought Him up to Jerusalem to present Him to the Lord. Now, you could, you could read that and say, okay, well, how much did they really know about what they were doing, right? And there's no way that, that any of us could know how much Joseph and Mary understood about the specifics of his mission, especially as it pertained to his death and resurrection. If they were anything else, if they were anything like, you know, for example, some of Jesus' disciples, they had no concept for the fact that the Messiah, the one who is God's promised Redeemer, was going to suffer something as awful as death on a cross, something as shameful as that. What they're doing here is what every Jewish family was supposed to do. They were presenting their firstborn son to the Lord. And in the providence of God, something even more special than that was happening. As God said through the prophet Isaiah, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love Him. So God is doing something that no eye has yet seen. God is doing something that no ear has yet heard. God is doing something that the heart of man could not possibly imagine unless God Himself 
did it. This is what God has prepared for those who love Him. I want us to see this preparation of Jesus for His work of redemption. I want us to see four aspects of this preparation. First is the fullness of His righteousness. Might help if I turn that on. The fullness of His righteousness. Luke mentions the Old Testament law five times in this passage. That is, if I counted right, and I I think I can count to five. Five times he mentions the Old Testament law in verse 22, verse 23, verse 24, verse 27, and then in verse 39. Notice the summary statement at the end in verse 39. It It says, And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. Now, what's the big deal with, with this you know, need to emphasize to us that what's happening here is a, somehow a fulfillment of the law? Why is that so important? Because God makes it so very clear that the only kind of redeemer who can truly save is one who is sinless. Hebrews 7 says, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest... Holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. So it was his sinlessness that qualified him to be a fitting high priest for us, The only way he could save sinners is if he had no sin of his own, if he himself was holy, innocent, unstained, and separated from sinners. But of course, when you think about sin, we sometimes kind of divide sin into two kinds, sin of commission and sin of omission. And so Hebrews 7 makes it very clear that he never committed any sin. He was sinless. He was innocent unstained, holy, separated from sinners. But in addition to that, there are also sins of omission, which means not only can we sin by doing the wrong thing, but we can also sin by failing to do what's right. And what we see here in Luke 2 is especially that second kind where Jesus is not failing to do what is righteous. He is doing what the law requires. He had, in his own words, to fulfill all righteousness. That's what he said when he went to be baptized by John. And John said, whoa, 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 who who am I to be baptizing you? And Jesus says, no, we have to do this to fulfill all righteousness. So it wasn't enough only for him to avoid sin, only for him to avoid doing something wrong. He also had to positively obey the law perfectly. Here's how Paul puts it in Galatians 4. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. We cannot be adopted as God's children unless He is perfect according to the law. Now, here's where the providence of God comes in so beautifully. That because Jesus was fully human... There was a time when he was unable, as as an infant, 
to fulfill the righteous requirements of the law on his own, which is why Luke tells us here that they, they when the, in verse 27, when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law. Jesus could not, at, at 40 days old, that's how old he would have been when they brought him to the temple. He's 40 days old. He's just over a month old. <clears throat> if you've ever been around a 40-day-old, they can't do a whole lot for themselves. Right? So he can't, he can't bring himself to the temple. He can't consecrate himself. He needs his earthly parents to do this for him. That's what Luke says they were doing. <clears throat> And so God worked through their obedience to the law to ensure that Jesus would be completely obedient to the Old Testament law because that's what was necessary for Him to be our Redeemer. That's why I say that what's happening here in Luke 2 is absolutely essential for our salvation. That's the first aspect of His preparation, the fullness of His righteousness. That yes, of course, as He got older and as He could make choices of His own, He chose never to sin. He chose always to fulfill righteousness. But even before he was capable as a little human baby of doing that on his own, God ensured that he was completely righteous according to the law so that he could be our redeemer. The second aspect of his preparation is the depth, depth of his humility. The depth of his humility. <clears throat> you know, Luke tends to be very meticulous in his details. Um, he's the only one of the four gospel writers who tells us the name of the governor of Syria at the time when Jesus was born, Quirinius. No, no other gospel writers tell us that kind of detail. So I want you to notice something. With that in mind, notice something really peculiar in verse 24. He says that uh, his parents brought him to present him to the Lord verse 24, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So if you're reading through this and you say, okay, Luke, you went through um, as much trouble as to tell us who was the governor of Syria when Caesar issued the census that led them to go to Bethlehem where he was born, but you don't know, did they offer a pair of turtle doves or did they offer two young pigeons? Which, which is it? Which kind of bird did they offer? Luke is not confused. He's not fuzzy on the details. He's quoting from Leviticus 12, which is why he says, according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. That's a quote from Leviticus 12. Each family, as they brought their firstborn to, to consecrate them to the Lord, to present them to the Lord, Here's what they were supposed to do. They were supposed to go to the temple and they were supposed to offer a lamb in the place of their firstborn. This was something that goes all the way back to Passover. In Exodus 13, while God is in the process of, of redeeming His people out of their slavery in Egypt, He's also giving them instructions for how they're going to remember this incredible thing that He did. And so one of the things He says is every family is going to Anytime there's a firstborn son, they're going to bring a lamb and they're going to offer it in his place to remind yourselves that this is what I saved you from. Because you recall Passover was about the saving of the firstborn sons. If they didn't offer a lamb, the son died. And so every, every Hebrew family was to do this throughout history. They were to, they were to go 
and they were to offer a lamb in the place of their firstborn son. But as, as time went on, God made a provision for, for those families who were so poor that they could not afford to offer a lamb. And what was the alternative? Leviticus 12, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So if a family was so poor that they could not afford to offer a lamb in the place of their son, this is what they could offer instead. And so the fact that this is what Joseph and Mary offered in the temple says to us that at least at this point in time, they were considerably poor. Now let's, let's ask a rhetorical question. Sometimes it can be instructive to ask hypothetical questions. Could we imagine a scenario in which Jesus was completely 100% obedient to the Old Testament law and completely sinless while living a comfortable middle-class lifestyle? Is it hypothetically possible that he could have grown up even in a wealthy upper-class family while still fulfilling all righteousness? It certainly seems possible. But that's not what happened, is it? He, he was born into poverty, and as he got older, he, he chose a life of poverty. He said, foxes have holes in the grounds, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So the irony is, shepherds, Luke's just told us, shepherds came to see him in Bethlehem. And the irony is, his parents cannot afford even a lamb to offer in the temple. And yet, they are holding in their arms the very Lamb of God. Jesus did not only humble himself to be obedient to the law or obedient to his parents. He humbled himself by identifying with those of lowest estate. The one who is of greatest worth plunged into the depths of poverty in order to make us spiritually rich. So this is the depth of his humility. This, this, that simple phrase, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons, it says to us that he has not just come to obey, he has come to obey in humility. And it points us to the humility that will uh, culminate at the cross. The third aspect we see of his preparation is the presence of the Spirit. The presence of the Spirit. Just as there are several references to the law, Luke also mentions several times in this story the Holy Spirit, especially with regard to, to Simeon. Luke wants us to see that, that what Simeon does in bearing witness about who Jesus is, he does under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Now, I, I don't want you to say any names, um, but we've all known some, some people who get a little bit older and they, they just kind of, they say some crazy stuff. And you, right, and you just got to say, well, that's just old such and such. They say crazy stuff sometimes. Luke wants us to know that Simeon is not just old crazy Simeon who's just talking and, oh boy, he's just crazy. Luke wants us to know that this man, what he says about Jesus, it's not just from him. It's not his opinion. This is from God. So this is worth a closer look. Notice what Luke says of Simeon in verse 25. He says, Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. Now think about what we don't know about Simeon. We don't know how old he was. Anna is advanced in years. Luke tells us that, but he doesn't tell us that about Simeon. 
We don't know if he was well-known or obscure. I mean, was Simeon could have been a priest for all we know, or he could have been a beggar for all we know. All we know about him is that his name was Simeon, that he was in Jerusalem, that he was righteous and devout, that he was waiting for the consolation of Israel, which is a way of saying that he was waiting for God to rescue and comfort his people through the promised Messiah. When he begins to speak, he says, Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Luke tells us that it had been revealed to him that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So that's what he means when he says that he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. He was waiting for the time when he would see what God had promised him he would see, which is the Lord's Christ. And Luke tells us the Holy Spirit was upon him. The Holy Spirit was upon him. Verse 26, it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Verse 27, and he came in the Spirit into the temple. So this was not a chance encounter. It's not like, boy, Simeon just happened to be there on the very day when they came in. Those kind of chance encounters happen all the time, right? But this was not that. There's something more to this. Simeon was there because the Spirit led him to be there. And what Simeon is going to say, he will say because the Holy Spirit was upon him. So right here at the beginning of his earthly life, the Holy Spirit is already active in the life of Jesus. And the Holy Spirit is leading other people to bear witness about who He is. This is the same Spirit by whom Jesus was conceived. Gabriel told Mary, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy Spirit was upon Mary, and it led Mary to give birth to the Son of God. That same Spirit is upon Simeon. And the Spirit leads Simeon to take him up in his arms and to bless him. This is the same Spirit who will descend on Jesus at his baptism and be with him during his temptation. This is the same Spirit who will anoint Jesus' ministry. So later on in Luke chapter 4, when Jesus is now 30-ish years old and he begins his public ministry, the first time, the first time he ever speaks publicly, he goes to the synagogue... He opens the scroll of Isaiah, and this is what he reads. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. The same Spirit that was upon Mary, the same Spirit that was upon Simeon, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So Jesus reads that from Isaiah, then He rolls up the scroll and He tells the people, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. I'm not just reading a prophecy. I am the fulfillment of the prophecy. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And this is the same Spirit who will cause Jesus' followers to be His witness. Think about the symmetry. Luke chapter 1, Gabriel tells Mary, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and you will give birth, right? What does Jesus tell His followers in Acts 1.8? You'll receive power when what? When the Holy Spirit has come upon you. The same Spirit that was upon Mary, that was upon Simeon, that was upon Jesus, the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you. 
and you'll receive power, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So already here in his earliest days, God is preparing Jesus with the presence of the Spirit. The fourth aspect of his preparation is the wideness of his mission. The wideness of his mission. Luke just told us in verse 26 that the Holy Spirit had revealed to Simeon that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And when Simeon takes up the child in his arms, he blesses God and says, this is in verse 29, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Jesus is is that salvation. Do you see that? Luke told us it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And it's when he lays eyes on Jesus that he says, Lord, now I can depart in peace because my eyes have seen your salvation. That's what he calls Jesus. The name Jesus means the Lord saves. So Jesus is that salvation. And this is the salvation, verse 31, that God has prepared in the presence of all peoples. To say that God has prepared this salvation means that it is His work. It's not an accomplishment of human effort. God has done this. And to say that God has prepared this salvation in the presence of all peoples is to say that Jesus is a Savior for all kinds of people, both for Israel and for Gentiles. Simeon says, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. Simeon's point is not that every person, that every individual will receive the salvation offered in Jesus. His point is that everyone who will be saved will be saved through Jesus. God has not prepared any other salvation except Jesus. And the offer of salvation is made in good faith to anyone who will hear the gospel and believe, regardless of their background, their nationality, their language, their ethnic heritage, or any other superficial thing like that. Jesus is not a Savior for one kind of people. It's not that Jesus is the Savior for Israelites or for white people, and then there's some other Savior for other people, or maybe there's not a Savior for them. Jesus is a Savior for all kinds of people. He's the one who says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. There's not an asterisk on that. He doesn't say, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out unless you happen to be brown, or unless you happen to speak some other language, or unless you happen to be white, or unless you happen to be blank. Whoever comes to me, I'll never cast out, period. And of course, the truth is, not everyone will come to him. Simeon hints at that as he goes on. The point, however, is that his arrival is so consequential that how people respond to him will determine their eternal fate. So here's the simplest way that I I know how to put it. 
Jesus is the dividing line among all humanity. Jesus is the dividing line among all humanity. After Simeon's blessing, Luke tells us in verse 33 that Joseph and Mary marveled at what was said about him. And I think even on just a very basic level, any of us could understand why parents would marvel if something were said about our newborn child in that way. But then something unexpected happens. I'm sure it was unexpected to them. So far, this has been a fairly happy, uplifting story, a story story of of unmixed joy. The first half of verse 34 seems to point in that same direction, and Simeon blessed them. So that first part, he was blessing God, and now he begins to bless them. But what Simeon says next, if we can call this a blessing, it is a very peculiar blessing. Verse 34, And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. Verse 35, And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. So suddenly, in the midst of all this joy and all this light and all this blessing, Simeon, who is still filled with the Holy Spirit, casts a dark shadow. When he says that this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many, he's not talking about temporary ups and downs. He's talking about eternity. The difference between eternal torment and eternal life will be how you respond to the infant being held in Simeon's arms. And the dark shadow that he casts is in the shape of a cross. Simeon tells Mary that a sword will pierce through your own soul also. So the joy of this birth would give way to the darkness of death. The infant who is being blessed will one day be cursed, not only by men, but by God Himself. Here's how Paul puts it in Galatians 3. He redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. So the the point of showing us that He fulfilled all righteousness not only as he got older, but even as an infant, is to show to us that this is the only person in all of human history who did not deserve to be cursed. This is the only human in all of human history who did not earn with their sin the wrath of God. And yet, the one who should not have been cursed, the one who had no sin, became a curse for us. The one who was eternally blessed became a curse for us so that the the curse of the law, so that we could be redeemed from it. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come even to the Gentiles, that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. He who was blessed, he who was perfectly righteous became cursed so that we might receive the blessing of God's Spirit, so that we might receive the blessing of adoption as God's children. 
So the question that I want to leave you with this morning is, on which side of this dividing line do you fall? We have this, this very human tendency to divide ourselves along lines that we can see, superficial lines, things like white and black, rich and poor, Republican and Democrat, and so on and so forth. Ultimately, as, as, as significant as those things can be right now, they will mean, and this is a very technical Greek term, they will mean diddly squat in eternity. It won't matter. All that will matter is what did you make of Jesus? He's the dividing line. Not money, not skin color, not language, not geography, not how you voted, none of that stuff. The dividing line among all humanity is Jesus. And so on which side of the dividing line do you fall? Simeon rejoiced that his eyes had seen God's salvation. And, you know, there, there, there could be a temptation here to say, boy, I, I sure wish that I could have been in Simeon's shoes to have been able to lay my eyes on Jesus in the way he did. And if that's what you want, you would be selling yourself short because we can see it even more clearly than he did. Because he said, Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace because my eyes have seen the salvation which you've prepared in the presence of all peoples. But we now live on the other side of the cross and the resurrection. And so we have a more complete picture of what that salvation looks like. We can see Jesus with eyes of faith looking into his word. We can see Jesus being obedient throughout his entire life to every command of the law. Not when his parents were choosing it for him, but when he could choose it himself. We can see Jesus laying down his rights to serve the humanity he created. We can see him getting down and washing the feet of his disciples who so often fail to trust in him. We can see Jesus humbling himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. And we can see Jesus being raised from that death, victorious and triumphant over it. So like Simeon, we can say, my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples we can see it even more clearly than he did. If you have seen this salvation, I pray that you will trust in him, that you will treasure him, and that we will work so that others may see it as well and rejoice with us. We're going to sing a hymn of invitation in a moment. This is an opportunity for us to respond to God's word. And, um, and so that's the question is... On which side of the dividing line do I fall? Um, if you're not on the side of Jesus, I pray that the Spirit would convict you of your sin and draw you to trust in Him, to turn from trying to be in charge of your life and give charge of your life to Him. And if you're on the side of Jesus, then God has given us a commission. Jesus has said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. He has given us the task of, of telling others of what we have seen so that they might rejoice with us. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how you so filled uh, Simeon with your spirit that we could hear what he said so many years separated from him. And yet, like him, we can rejoice in the coming of this 
promised King and Savior. Lord, I pray that, uh, Lord, whoever's hearing my voice right now, whether they're in this room or whether they are at home or wherever they may be, Lord, that you would, by your Spirit, that you would speak to them, that your Spirit would be upon them. And Lord, if they don't have a relationship with you, that, that they would be convicted right now. And Lord, that they would be um, convicted of their sin, but also convicted of your righteousness, Lord Jesus, that they would see that you are the only one who is perfect. You are the only one who has pleased God. And Lord, and Lord that they would be drawn to you, to trust in you. And Lord, for those who, who are walking with you, for those who do have a relationship with you, I pray that they would be encouraged uh, to, to rejoice in what you have done. Lord, that we would look with eyes of faith at what a wonderful salvation you have prepared for us, Jesus, that you are an indescribable gift, um, that there is, there is nothing that we could have imagined greater than this, and that we would so desire to tell others about you, whether it's people that we encounter randomly or whether it's people that we work with or people who even live in our own home, Lord, that we would have a desire just to speak of you and to overflow with joy um, as we speak to others about you. So God, I pray that you would help us to respond rightly now, Lord, that we would be very, very sure on which side of this dividing line we fall. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.